From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Dana Perkins, and you are listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. The first solar panel was invented at the end of the 19th century, but it took until 1954 for Bell Labs to create the first commercially viable solar cell. Today, many would consider it a cornerstone of the energy transition and a part of clean power rollout all over the world. In the 21st century, we've seen solar adoption reaching new highs and module prices reaching new lows. To put things in perspective, global installed capacity of photovoltaics in 2012 was at 102 gigawatts, and a decade later, it grew to 1.2 terawatts, which brings us up to today. So what does the remainder of 2023 have in store for solar? Will the industry reach new milestones, and how might that differ in different parts of the world? On today's show, we're joined by BNF solar specialist Jenny Chase, and she's going to talk to us about BNF's Q4 2023 solar market outlook. She shares the current global dynamics for solar, for example, how Europe's recent buying spree of modules has affected prices, as well as the status of solar megabases in China, and how onshoring solar manufacture in the U.S. has impacted module prices. I also asked Jenny what keeps her up at night. Is it price cannibalization or trade wars? And just how much solar does she consider to be too much solar? BNF subscribers are going to be able to access BNF's solar market outlook for Q4 2023 on BNF.com, at BNF on the Bloomberg Terminal, or on the BNF mobile app. Now, if you like this podcast, if you subscribe, you'll receive an update on your phone when a future episode is published. And if you provide us with a review or a rating, that'll make us more discoverable by others. But right now, let's jump into our conversation with Jenny about what's happening in solar. Jenny, great to have you back on the show today. Great to be here, Dana. So we're going to discuss solar. I mean, what else would we discuss? The fun thing about this is we are preparing for this show, given that we've done this show and you actually, you write books on the topic of solar. You go on other people's shows. You're on TV about solar. So let's jump into this, but let's do this flashpoint of right now, we're going to talk about BNF Solar Market Outlook, looking into the future. We're also just going to discuss a bit of the COP goals, so COP28's tripling renewables by 2030, and that solar element within there. But I want to know, headed into this, is this going to be an uplifting show, or do you have bad news for me? It's not a great time to be a solar manufacturer. On the other hand, all the installation numbers are going up. It's very easy to look at solar with a a 10-year overview and say, well, obviously, solar is going to be massive. Solar is king. Solar is going to change the world. And I think that's probably true. The great thing about having to write a quarterly outlook is that you have to ground it in what's actually happening. And to be honest, there is some big news and there is some slightly not so exciting news. So 
the big news is that China is likely to install 240 gigawatts of solar panels this year. The reported numbers look a little bit lower because they're in AC capacity from the grid. So that's the grid and inverter capacity, not the panel capacity. But it's probably going to be about 240 gigawatts of solar panels going into China, which is like last year, the entire world installed 252 gigawatts of solar panels. So this is quite an acceleration. And part of the reason for that, though, is that prices are super low. Yesterday, I was updating the price index for solar modules. And right now, your standard solar module in a free trade market costs 12.8 cents per watt. That's below where anyone thought it would be. That's below where the experience curve says it should be. I'm having real difficulty constructing the experience curve in a way that makes any sense with 12.8 cents per watt. It is, if you look at the cost stack, possibly still slightly above the cost of every step of the value chain variable cost, but it is super low. I mean, these are really prices that not only have we never seen this anymore, but it also makes no sense. So this is an industry that can still, after all these years, surprise the hell out of you. I am so surprised. I think it's because I've been watching it for 17 years, 18 years now that I am so surprised. And with these prices, does this therefore give it the most competitive LCOE in most parts of the world globally, bar none of any other technology? Solar is super cheap. If you've got a grid connection and you've got land to put it on, then if you can get someone to buy the power, then then you can sell the power. But it's not really the price of modules that's driving solar economics anymore. And the, the challenges are something entirely different. That said, low module prices are a big problem if you're a manufacturer selling solar modules. Well, so let's then go into that. Let's talk about the module manufacturers, why is this such a hard time? Because it is so, they're not getting the margins on the things that they're selling despite the demand. Is there a glut of supply? Are there too many manufacturers? Exactly. I mean, there's always too many solar manufacturers. That's It's an industry with structural over overcapacity because everyone loves solar manufacturers. Everyone loves solar panels. So everyone is like, let's make solar panels. And then it turns out that the margins in making solar panels are terrible. It's a commodity business. The new generation of technology is always coming online and it's more efficient. It's cheaper to make. It uses less materials. It's a great business to be buying solar modules. But even there, a lot of European markets have what they're calling a hangover. There is a huge inventory of solar modules in Europe because last year there was the energy crisis. Power prices went through the roof. Everyone panicked. Everyone put in orders for solar modules. And this year, the pressure is off. Power prices have have eased a bit. We've realized that some of the the worst case scenarios for power prices are not going to happen. People are asking questions like, do I want to put solar modules on my roof at any price right now? And there are there are installation, there are bottlenecks in labor. So essentially the European market has not grown as fast as I think people buying modules in Europe expected. And there's probably about a year of inventory sitting around in the supply chain in Europe of solar modules. And it's that extra inventory that is what they're referring to as a hangover, because I'm sorry, but using that term, I'm not sure I fully get why that is the term being used. (laughs) So um, sellers are referring to this as a hangover because there was a huge party in 2022. A lot of demand, people who were going to buy solar anyway, bought solar systems and solar modules early. And this year, they're like, no, no, thank you. No more. <laughs> this, we have this. a warehouse. We have warehouses full of solar modules at this point. 
I love this. Okay. It was a party in 2022. That's amazing. <laughs> and it's not like it's not a party in 2023, but it's more like a normal year. And a normal year when you had a really big party previously doesn't feel so good. Or to put it another way, demand was pulled forward from 2023 into 2022 and in consequence is not necessarily materializing now. now. We all have those friends that, you know, go home before midnight and those ones who miraculously make it after midnight. So let's talk about where the music's still blaring, where the party's still going. Let's talk about China. Huge producer that we all know, manufacturers of solar modules are coming out of China, but additionally being installed. You had already touched upon the fact that there has been more installed in China than in the previous year across the world combined. What it's is driving? Slightly less. Sorry, slightly, no, it's less. Not, it's slightly less than in the, in the rest of the world. It's 240 in China versus 252 last year worldwide. Ah, okay. So important clarification, but darn, very, very close. So we'll approximate there. So why is China, why is China booming at such a rapid rate? Well, China has China has two main sectors. So it's got the rooftop sector, which is on a province by province basis. And most of the provinces have been encouraged to roll out government schemes to do bulk development of solar on roofs. And many of them have quite successfully. It's a, a, a major market. There are major markets in Shandong, in Guangdong, basically where the people are. And there's also the energy megabases where the government has allocated a grid connection out to a place with lots of land. And developers have to put up to 10 gigawatts of solar on that one grid connection and often some wind and batteries as well. And those megabases were auctioned off in the past few years. And the developers were mostly waiting until the prices dropped to do them. There's also a deadline at the end of the year for some of those megabases. So the developers are, are now saying, wow, finally, cheap modules. We've got a deadline coming up. Let's build it. So that's, let's get it done. It's last call. <laughs> let's last, last orders. <laughs> last orders. Let's get it well, done. Well, last orders for that batch of megabases. But, that will, but there is another batch next year. You're referring to the megabases in China, which this is a term that I'm not hugely familiar with. So if there are other people listening, can you put this in context? Are these only found in China? Is this at a scale that is really not often or maybe ever found elsewhere in the world? And can you put the size into context for our listeners? So the good thing the good thing is we have an upcoming note from Chanyi Shao in Beijing on the on China's energy megabases because they don't get talked about enough. So China's megabases are relatively unique, although there are some similar developments in India. It's the government finding a patch of land which can be developed for solar and wind, running a grid connection out there, and then just giving a state-owned developer the right to do it. And these can be 5, 10, 20 gigawatts. They've been auctioned off in batches. And the most recent lot will be co-located solar, wind, storage, and sometimes some thermal as well, just to get the most out of that grid connection. But this is a really centralized planning, really low price development of a huge amount of renewable energy. And it is similar to some of India's 24-7 and big auctions in some respects, but they are even bigger. So let's pivot to the U.S. for a second, because we recently did a show on grids and that keeps cropping up. Grid connectivity is creating time lags for installing renewable energy, wind, solar, you name it. The grid is requiring additional work in order to facilitate new projects coming online. First of all, are we seeing the same grid connectivity issues in and backlogs in China? It sounds like perhaps not. And then let's, well, we'll go to go to the U.S. in just a second after that. But firstly, in China, is the grid able to handle all of this? 
So any renewable energy market in the world you go to at the moment, you can you can say, well, the big bottleneck right now is grid. And you will be right. You can go to a conference in Turkey and say, here in Turkey, the big bottleneck is grid. And everyone there will think you know so much about the Turkish solar market. You can do this anywhere. So yes, it is a problem in China. And in China particularly, there's the problem that the areas with lots of land and lots of sun and wind are not the places where people live and use power. And China, more than any other country, has used ultra high voltage transmission lines to take power across the country. But even the biggest transmission line is difficult to use fully with solar and wind, particularly with just solar because of the low capacity factor of solar. So yes, it is even a bottleneck in China, although China has certain structural advantages to building enormous projects to sort it out. So then let's do that pivot to the U.S. as a a completely different market. Have the timelines for getting new projects online been extensively elongated as of late? And can you just touch upon, well, the current state of play in terms of nearshoring and domestic manufacturers of solar modules, because there has been a change to the way the U.S. treats semiconductors over the last couple of years, and that has changed how they go about purchasing solar panels. And what I really want to know is, are they experiencing these same ultra-low prices? Well, the U.S. is a small solar market and difficult to do business in. One of the reasons is that the, the allocating grid is relatively difficult. It's very regional in the US and so it is a bottleneck there. In fact, I don't think the problem is that the grid procedures have got worse. I think the problem is that you've got more projects trying to get grid connection and so it is the bottleneck, whereas economics and power purchase agreements are not the bottleneck anymore. So it's just found a new bottleneck. So on the supply side, things are easing up on the US. Prices for solar modules are still over 25 cents a watt, which considering we just said that the prices in the rest of the world were 12.8 cents per watt is quite difficult. But the US is used to having expensive modules. It always has had expensive modules and the subsidy in the US is very generous. The Inflation Reduction Act in the US, the effect on clean energy of that is basically pushing down the accelerator on a market that has the handbrake firmly on. So the US is skidding around. Modules are cheaper. There's inventory there as well. And there is about 50 gigawatts a year of module manufacturing capacity planned in the US to be added. Now, I don't know what will happen now. Modules in the rest of the world are so, so cheap. I suspect, just on a personal, personally, I suspect some of the capacity will be cancelled because why build a factory for something that's almost free, even with the trade barriers? And the trade barriers are significant. I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act is paying First Solar, the only fully integrated supplier, 17 US cents per watt to manufacture in the US. So the price elsewhere is 12.8. First solar is getting 17 just from manufacturing in the US. There's also a four or five cent per watt premium for domestic content in the US. So the US module industry is going to be very heavily subsidized, probably enough that it survives against competition from Southeast Asia and India. And increasingly, those are the companies that are selling into the US. In the US, the economics are really good, but the bottlenecks are still getting your projects connected to the grid. And the independent system operators are working on making that easier, on on finding the locations where they can safely be connected to the grid and letting those projects go ahead and then kicking everyone else out of the queue. Because there is no point in having a grid queue full of projects that are never going to get built. Now, I do want to continue our world tour, but before we leave the US, is solar creating jobs? Yeah. The thing about having the accelerator on and the handbrake on is that it creates double the number of jobs because some of them work in the accelerator and some of them work in the handbrake. It's a great place to be a lawyer or a a tax equity arranger. And yeah, some of the people are actually making solar modules and, and building solar systems as well. 
Okay. <laughs> Let's continue our around the world tour. And I'd like to next go to Brazil. Brazil is at this point in time vying for third, maybe not quite there, depending on when we're pulling the numbers, is a very competitive space in terms of demand for solar. What is driving Brazil to become, well, to to be so interested in solar at this point in time? Subsidies. If you see a massive boom like that, it's usually subsidies. So it's it's a little more complicated than that. In Brazil, there's a net metering system where if you're a business or a company, you can build up to five megawatts of solar on your roofs and you can share that solar electricity between your different sites. And that solar, when you feed it into the grid, it also runs your meter backward effectively. Now minus some grid costs, you have to pay some grid costs on that, but the grid costs are pretty minor considering the price of energy. And so, yeah, essentially it's net metering for large commercial systems in Brazil. So continuing on, let's go now to another continent entirely. Let's go to Africa. There have been grid reliability issues that have been well documented for many years in South Africa, in Nigeria. Nigeria, namely, has a booming population, increasing demand for access to electricity. So is solar helping to alleviate this grid intermittency or is it feeding into it? And really, what does the situation look like for solar growth in Africa right now? So Yes, in both Nigeria and South Africa, solar is helping to solve the problems of power access. I would say that in South Africa, the latest data suggests that I got a bit overexcited last time I did a forecast for South Africa. I said it would be five gigawatts new build this year, but it's actually slowed down quite a lot since May and June. And it's probably going to be more like 3.5 gigawatts. It's so hard to estimate these markets. But apparently May and June is when people have the worst blackouts. And so there was a peak of demand there, which has not been sustained. It's quieting down a bit. But 3.5 gigawatts is still a lot. And there are increasingly commercial installations going in. So South Africa is booming. Nigeria, we have even less data, but the exports from China to Nigeria are still going up. So in both these places, we think that solar is having a meaningful impact on people's access to electricity. And of course, we're watching the rest of Africa, or we're trying to watch the rest of Africa, because it's so important, both for the solar industry to find new markets that are untapped, and also for the people actually there, that these countries can leapfrog, not go through the the whole thing of building a fossil fuel powered grid, but go straight to something better and cheaper. Now, you said at the beginning of the show that these market outlooks force us to think about things in these kind of restricted timelines, which is actually quite useful for thinking about short, medium, long term, because we do look at all of these different aspects of the industry. So over the course of the rest of this year and into next year, are we going to continue to see growth? So we absolutely do see growth in the solar industry. It will continue. It will be almost universal. I think when some people are forecasting, they want to just carry the line on the line up. And I've got to caution as a forecaster that you cannot just do that because exponential growth is a mathematically terrifying thing. And if your forecasts involve covering the entire world with solar panels, they are probably wrong. We're getting to the point as an analysis team where you have to start asking questions about when solar does slow down. And there are negative feedback mechanisms in solar. Once you get a certain amount of solar in the grid, power should cost less at midday on a sunny sunny day. Given the growth rates we're looking at, it should probably be free on a sunny day during sunny hours by 2030. And that will affect the economics of solar and make people less likely to build more solar. 
Now, there are a lot more batteries than we thought there would be as well. <laughs> batteries are also booming. And of course, batteries can shift at least the daily generation to the evening when the sun goes down, which helps solar by propping up the prices in the middle of the day and meaning that solar projects get paid more for their output. But there are, there are limits to integrating solar. We can work on those limits in many ways, but there are negative feedback mechanisms that do cause certain solar markets to slow down. And forecasting when they will is very, very difficult. And you can't just extrapolate an exponential line forever. Well, so let's talk about this growth then in light of the upcoming climate conference, COP28, which will be in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. And one of the things that the COP presidency has outlined is this concept of tripling renewables by 2030 as being a goal that we should be striving towards. And I know that we are publishing a report that looks at that specific goal and talks about various aspects of it, including whether or not we think it's attainable. So, Jenny, what are your views on tripling renewables by 2030? 30 for solar. So we're expecting the pledge to be that to be negotiated at COP28 to be that the renewables capacity at the end of 2022 worldwide will be tripled to 2030, which would take it to about 11 terawatts of renewables capacity by 2030. And this won't be homogenous. I mean, Brazil already, Brazil has loads of renewables. Brazil gets about 85% of its power from, from renewables, including large hydro. So it doesn't really make sense for Brazil to triple that. Whereas there are parts of the world like Africa, like Southeast Asia, that want to more than triple, not just for their own economic reasons, but also to be on a net zero pathway to 2050. We think, though, as a global target, it's, it's in line with our net zero pathway. And so that's probably a good thing. But it will have to be implemented differently in different countries. And the other thing is, as a solar analyst, don't make it all blooming solar. Because if you triple global renewables capacity with solar... Solar capacity factors structurally are at most 30%, and that's in a truly exceptionally sunny place. Whereas wind capacity factors should be higher than 40%, and hydro capacity factors can be highest still. And also the wind blows at night and in the winter. So we must not take this tripling renewables capacity and say it'll be all solar. We should be building wind as well. As a solar analyst, my key takeaway is we should be building wind. It should be an increasingly diversified grid. We need to see a lot of different things that are doing different things for the mix in order to handle intermittency. But as a solar analyst, then would you still say, assuming that it's not the only but part of the mix, should solar still be at the center and perhaps the dominant source of energy? Solar will get built whatever you do. So it's going to happen regardless of what Jenny says. Solar. You couldn't <laughs> stop solar if you wanted to. What we need to be doing, what, what government should be focusing on is grids and wind. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So on the range of things that could be keeping you up at night in the solar industry, you've already identified that we need to be thinking about grids. We need to be thinking about the various sources that are going on to the grid. But I've got two things that I think we're often considering for the future. 
maybe even right now. And they are, one, the semiconductor trade wars that are taking place currently, and then also future land use constraints. Which would you say you are watching most closely? I'm not that worried about land use constraints, to be absolutely honest. Maybe except in city-states, where they literally do not have much land. Most countries could meet a sensible amount of their electricity supply with solar on the ground. And they could alternatively and probably should put solar on the roofs instead. I think rooftop solar makes a huge amount of sense and you should not build solar on land that is otherwise useful. But there does tend to be a lot of land. The difficulty is most of it doesn't have a grid connection and some of it probably doesn't have space for a grid connection. I think there probably is. I think land use constraints are frankly probably overblown. And sometimes they're based on official data of what land is good for that doesn't reflect what the land is actually good for. Like a lot of land zoned as agricultural land kind of isn't. It's not in use. And sometimes even it can't be in use. But at the same time, like solar on roofs is a no regrets option. So not so worried about land use. I am worried about trade wars making things difficult. Just the fact that China is selling modules for less than 13 US cents a watt while the US is trying to get people to pay for 25 cents a watt modules, it clearly is a bit of a problem. And it's also not just a price thing, it's also it's quite difficult to get the paperwork to get modules into the US. However, companies are very, very ingenious and they have been managing it, which is why there is now a massive inventory of solar modules in the US. So I am worried about trade wars because we do not want a situation where China is happily running on renewables, whereas the US refuses to use the latest tech and is therefore still burning fossil fuels when it doesn't have to. And you reference the fact that the latest tech is always coming out. What is the latest tech as of right now in solar? TopCon, which stands for, and you don't have to know this, I have trouble remembering it a lot of the time, tunnel oxidated passivated contact cell. I promise you I'm not going to remember that. (laughs) You don't have to. They're TopCon cells and they replace the old PERC cells, passivated emitter rear contact cells. They're about a percentage point more efficient. Everyone's built factories to make them. And all that means is what was a 500 watt solar module. The same size module is now sort of 525 watts. You get a little bit more for your materials and your space. And this is how solar works. There is not a visible difference between the old model and the new model. But if you don't have a factory for the new model, your old factory is obsolete. And if you're still paying debt on that, bad luck. So one of the things that happened in this most recent market outlook is you actually revised your numbers up. That doesn't happen all of that often. Actually, it does. Sadly, it happens all the time. <laughs> actually, see, it actually, it happens far more often than we revise it downwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, but you've revised it up. And I want to know then, why are we not seeing that reflected with publicly traded companies? Solar stock prices seem to be doing poorly across the board at the moment. But with demand so high, why is this not reflected? So we, th- we last quarter, we thought that 392 gigawatts of solar modules would be installed worldwide. This quarter, we think, this in tw- and this is in 2023, which bear in mind, it's almost over. And we still don't know what it what was built. But we now think it's probably going to turn out to have been about 410, 415 gigawatts of solar modules worldwide. And that upwards revision is mostly China. But at the same time, supply is even more than that. We knew there was loads of supply. We know that there's over 500 gigawatts of modules being made this year. But suddenly, it seems to have caught up with the market. And therefore, the price is right down. So demand is high, but supply is higher. And in consequence, price is right down. And that's why solar stocks are suffering. 
So, Jenny, we came into this room with me very much looking at this market outlook and thinking about, okay, well, let's talk about what's in there. But I want to know what's not in there. Jenny, what have I missed? What questions should I have asked as the expert? What are you concerned about? So what you should have asked something about power price cannibalization, because it is my opinion that everyone is worried too little about power price cannibalization or hedging it with words about market structure or market design. It is not a market design thing. It is a problem that solar panels in one place all generate at the same time, which is when it's sunny. And that means that the power price when it's sunny is going to, if the market is being at all rational, it should drop to zero. It makes no sense to add more solar to generate at sunny times when you've already covering the whole of your demand. Obviously, that also helps at times when, when it's not as sunny, where it's just a little bit sunny. But this is going to be fundamentally one of the major negative feedback mechanisms on solar build in the next 10 years. And the things that I'm interested in are ways in which flexible demand is emerging. So demand for electricity that can usefully be used only on sunny days. This is actually way harder than it sounds because most sources of demand are capex intensive. And so they need to be using cheap energy more often than just in sunny hours of sunny days. Like you can't make hydrogen just on the sunny hours of sunny days. The cost of building electrolyzers is too high. You can't make steel just on sunny hours of sunny days. You can probably make your freezer extra cold or or pre-cool your house with aircon or load your electric vehicle. Those are all useful. And I'm interested in mechanisms to encourage users to do that. Even with all the batteries and even all the flexibility in the world, this is going to be the big challenge in the next 10 years, integrating cheap power in the sunny hours so that both the sellers of the power do actually get some money for it and also that it alleviates the later surge of demand for electricity at night when the sun goes down. Jenny, it has been a pleasure having you here, as always, to give us a snapshot of what's actually happening in the solar industry. We look forward to having you back and we look forward to reading your next book. Have a great day, everyone. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.